Welcome to The Free Will Show. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Flummer. In the last episode, we talked about what free will is. In this episode, we're going to talk about threats to free will, specifically the threat of fatalism, foreknowledge, and determinism. And our guest will be John Martin Fisher. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm happy to introduce our first guest on the Free Will Show, Dr. John Martin Fisher. Uh, John is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, and University Professor in the University of California. He's written extensively on free will and moral responsibility, and he's recently written a book called Death, Immortality, and Meaning in Life, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. So thanks for joining us, John. Uh, Could you start by telling our audience a little bit about yourself, your work, how you came to be interested in working on free will? Uh, Yes. Thank you, Taylor and Matt. Thank you for inviting me. And I, um, let's see, I grew up in Northern California and went to Stanford University as an undergraduate. And that's really where I got interested in studying and thinking about free will. I, um, I guess I al- always had been interested in the problem of evil. That is how a perfect God would allow the level of suffering that, um, exists in in the world. And one of the responses is the free will defense that God had to create the best of all possible worlds, and that has to involve human freedom. So I started thinking in Sunday school uh, when I was young about free will. But then at Stanford, I took a class from uh, really a great teacher and philosopher named Michael Bratman, in which we read some of the contemporary classic papers on free will. Uh, including one by a couple papers by Harry Frankfurt, the uh, contemporary philosopher. Um, And so that got me interested. And then I had the opportunity to do my graduate work at Cornell University, where one of the leading uh, contributors to this area was my supervisor. So I've, I guess I've always had an interest, but I was also lucky to have really good professors. So um, that's, that's how I got here. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. In one of our previous episodes, Taylor and I were talking about, to each other about how we became interested in free will. And I had the exact same story that you did. <laughs> uh-huh. I was interested in the problem of evil. I'm like, well, what, how do we figure this out? And the free will right. defense was the, the, the main answer that I heard about. Yes. Good. Yeah. That, and then it kind of leads naturally to questions about, moral responsibility and criminal responsibility and how we can uh, even, you know, do pretty severe things to people like uh, apply the death penalty. And so at a certain level, the issues are very abstract, but then they relate to very important concrete issues. And I should just mention that I have on a couple of occasions consulted with attorneys in death penalty cases uh, because Um, What happens in California is there is a a trial, and if the individual is is convicted of a capital offense, then there's a second trial that um, um, 
tries to evaluate whether the individual should actually be put to death. And in that part of the trial, I've been consulted about <laughs> some of my views on moral responsibility. So it's been, and I should say in both cases, the individual did not get the death penalty. So I, I guess I was successful in that way. <laughs> One conception of free will, we, we sometimes think of it as, lee, as leeway freedom, or sometimes you hear it uh, described as a freedom to do otherwise. Um, you've used this in some of your written work, this metaphor of the Garden of Forking Pass to characterize this sort of freedom. Can you uh, describe this conception of freedom a little bit more for us and for our listeners? Yes, it is the idea of sometimes at least being free to do otherwise. Uh, the idea is that uh, in order to be a free agent, at least sometimes and in uh, at least some important contexts, I have the freedom to do to take one path or another path that if I do take one path I was genuinely free or had the power to take the other path it may be uh, if I never have such freedom then I always uh, had to do what I did I necessarily did what I did uh, and I really didn't have the kind of free will that many people think we need to be morally responsible the metaphor uh, that I use is the Garden of Forky Paths, and it the picture is you know like a branch of a tree that that, um, that has uh, sub branches. It that we don't always have that kind of freedom. Sometimes you know we're stuck in a traffic jam, or <laughs> we're walking up a path, and there's been a little uh, earthquake, and there's a boulder in the path, and we really don't have alternative possibilities. Maybe sometimes we're uh, kidnapped and tied up so we don't have freedom to do otherwise even if we have freedom to choose otherwise but the basic idea is that we don't have to do what we do we sometimes have alternative paths into the future or alternative branches the metaphor actually comes from a, the title of a short story by the argentine writer borges uh, it's called the garden of forking paths it's a fascinating right. story it's an interesting story, and I appropriated it, the title, to express or encapsulate this idea of having more than one alternative, and the paths or the branches are the alternatives. But uh, Borges himself didn't wasn't using it uh, to make that point. He actually was using it to offer the idea that the different paths are equally real. So hmm. there, are, there, it's not that I take one path, but I could have taken the other, but in some sense I take both. They're both realized. And so I use the picture, but not his interpretation of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, philosophers have talked about various challenges or threats to our having free will in this sense. And so the focus of this episode is to introduce three classic threats to this conception of freedom. So we're calling it fatalism, foreknowledge, and determinism. Um, these terms get used in a host of different ways. Fatalism has to do with past truths about what we will do in the future or in the present. Um, so sometimes people call this logical determinism or logical fatalism. Uh, and then there's divine foreknowledge or 
what's sometimes called theological determinism, where God knows in advance what we're going to do, and that somehow calls into question our freedom. And then the last one is causal or physical determinism, where it's the laws of physics themselves that are sort of making it such that there's only one physically possible future. So we'll talk through each of these uh, one at a time in more detail, but you've pointed out in some of your work that each of these challenges to free will has a similar uh, sort of structure. So I was wondering if before we dive into each of the threats, you could say a little bit about what they have in common. Yeah. And by the way, you set that up very nicely. Maybe I I should be interviewing you, Tim. (laughs) uh, In in any case, yes, uh, these arguments, they're great arguments that have but worried people uh, for millennia in the case of fatalism and uh, God's foreknowledge, and then for the for hundreds of years in the case of scientific or or causal determinism, mm-hmm. and uh, many philosophers and theologians and uh, logicians and fiction writers have struggled with these ideas. They're great, but they do have a common structure. Uh, what I would say, the simple idea is that they're all driven by the idea that. The past is fixed and out of our control. Mm. Um, we often, you know, think, you know, don't cry over spilt milk or the past is over and done with. There's nothing we can do about it. So you have to move on. And the basic engine or uh, intuitive idea that's driving all of these arguments is that there is simply the fixity of the past. Now, as we go on, we'll see that they have. Uh, similar structures, or uh, you can regiment the arguments, each of them, or interpret them, or present them in different ways, but all of them are capable of being presented in those different ways. In um, So you can see the parallels. It's not just that they involve the fixity of the past, but they're structurally parallel arguments. And so we'll see that. Um, um, but the simple idea is that they're based on the idea that the past is fixed. And intuitively, that's a very powerful idea. John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, November 26th, uh, 22nd, 1963, and there's just nothing that we can do about it now. Mm-hmm. It's over and done with. And if, if you told me that you, can't, you could perform some action, but only if John F. Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, then I would say, well, it's nice to know, but I, that kind of shows that I can't perform the action. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's like if you told me you could perform, well, uh, let's suppose I'm tied to my desk by a very powerful chain and I'm physically incapable of breaking through it, and you tell me, yeah, you could leave the office, but only if the chains weren't there. <laughs> uh, again, I, I'm likely to say, well, that's very interesting, but I, I still can't leave the room. So anyway, uh, the idea is the past is kind of is a constraint that might be analogous to uh, being chained up. Yeah, there's a different, the first thing that I think of is when I hear that example is there's different senses of of can or can't, um, when you say, well, I'm chained up, so I couldn't leave the room unless I was not chained up. But there's another sense of can where you might say something like, oh, I can play the piano even when I'm chained up. Right. Right. I can play the piano even if there's no piano here or I'm chained up or I'm temporarily drunk or paralyzed. 
Right. But the can there is a can of general ability. I have that mm -hmm. general ability to play the piano. Or let's say I'm temporarily paralyzed, so I can't even move my mouth. Uh, still, you'd want to say I have the ability to speak English. Uh, but now there's a different notion of can that I think we could call the uh, free will sense of can, where um, it's not, it's connected to the idea of moral responsibility. Because if I am chained to my desk and I can't break the chains intuitively, even if I have the general ability to leave the, my office, it wouldn't uh, that the possession of that general ability is not really relevant to my moral responsibility in the context. What's what's relevant is whether I have the capacity to exercise that ability or I have a kind of more particularized kind of power. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So let's dive into the, the different threats that, that Taylor set up. The, the first one that we're going to talk about is fatalism. And before we talk about the, the threat of fatalism, I think it's important, kind of like we just did where we talked about different senses of the word can, that we talk about different senses of the word fate or fatalism mm -hmm. because it's ambiguous. Um, right. So we, we could use them in one sense or the other. And in what sense are we using the, the terms fate and fatalism when we talk mm -hmm. about this threat to our free will? Right. You're, Matt, you're right that these terms are used quite uh, flexibly and uh, people use them in, in different ways. And it is important just in, in a context to be clear about how we're using the terms. It's not as though there's just one way you could use them, but you have to be careful to stipulate. I'm using it in this way. So often people use the idea of fatalism as the, it's the idea that something will happen no matter what I do. And in fact, um, this is, I mean, I, I actually uh, printed out a little story that's very famous, but it illustrates this idea. And rather than just trying to say it on my own, I'll read it really quickly, because if I tried to say it, it would take me longer. So it's from a, <laughs> uh, this is a, story, a short story by uh, Somerset Mom, and uh, it's called Sheppy, the short story. So here's the passage. A merchant in Baghdad sends his servant to the marketplace for provisions. Soon afterwards, the servant comes home, white and trembling, and tells him that in the marketplace he was jostled by a woman whom he recognized as death, who made a threatening gesture. Borrowing the merchant's horse, he flees at great speed to Samara, a distance of about 70, 75 miles, where he believes that death will not find him. The merchant then goes to the marketplace and finds death and asks why she made the threatening gesture to his servant. She replies, that was not a threatening gesture. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. So uh, <laughs> it, it's the idea that basically you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, or no matter what you do, something will happen. Um, it's like you're stuck on a horse. Someone's put you on a horse and uh, you can't stop the horse. Um, but you can uh, pull the reins so it'll, the horse will go to the left or the right path, but it turns out both paths end up in Rome or in the same <laughs> place, to borrow an example from uh, Peter Van Inwing. So 
that's one idea of fatalism. And Daniel Dennett, another interesting philosopher, uses he uh, employs the term pockets of local fatalism. And what he means is if you're thrown off a cliff or something, uh, to use a kind of scary and somewhat morbid example, but you're thrown off the cliff and you're going to land on like, below no matter what you choose. You know, no matter how hard you try, you're going to end up um, hitting the ground. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pocket of local fatalism. And so is the story about the merchant and Samara. And uh, but the worry that some people have is that everything's like that. And they, um, but what I, that's one use of the word fatalism, but I don't, in, in most philosophical contexts, we don't use it in that way. The way I use it and most people is that fatalism is the idea that mere truths of logic or mere semantic facts, like, uh, what truth is and uh, very basic facts and not making substantive assumptions about science or God entails that we are never free to do otherwise. So fatalism is the doctrine that very minimal assumptions, not from science or theology, but just about truth and logic entail in themselves that we're never free to do otherwise. That's what I mean by fatalism. And yeah. That's helpful. Thanks, John. I guess a lot of people, when they hear fatalism, think the first thing that you describe, they think, no matter what I do, it doesn't make a difference what I do. It's fated in that right. sense. But right. what you'll hopefully go on to tell us is that uh, the the logical fatalism problem isn't so much that. that Maybe it's true that if you had so- done something different, something different would have happened. But right. the problem is you're not free to do anything different. At least that's the challenge. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, um, right. And the argument we could, we can basically understand the argument, um, in a pretty simple way. One of the first, um, examples of the argument was in Aristotle's work, De Interpretatione, book two, and famous sea battle argument. And what he, he was actually talking about an argument that other people put forward the sophists, but he was analyzing it. And the argument is basically this, that either there will be a sea battle tomorrow or there won't be a sea battle tomorrow. If it's now true that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, then there's nothing I can do about it. And if it's now false that there, I mean, now false that there will be a sea battle tomorrow, then there's nothing I can do about that. So there's nothing I can do about whether there's a sea battle or not. And it's Hmm. kind of, it's, that's the kind of prototype for the argument from fatalism. Um, Another way we we can regiment it or structure it in a way that makes it clearly parallel to the other arguments that we'll talk about later about God and about science. And we could just say this, that, um, you know, I'm, uh, well, you now in the audience are very excitingly uh, listening to this uh, this uh, interview. And so um, given that you are listening to this interview, it was true a thousand years ago that you would listen to this interview today. But given that I can't change the past, there's nothing I can do about the fact that um, 
a thousand years ago, or there's nothing you could do about the fact that a thousand years ago, uh, it was true that you would be listening now. And there's nothing you could do about the fact that if it was true then, then it would happen. That is, if there's nothing you could do about the fact that if it was true a thousand years ago that you would listen now, um, then you would listen now. You have no choice about that. So it follows that you have no choice about listening, about turning on the computer and opening uh, it to this page and listening. And that's pretty startling, really, because intuitively we think we are often free. And in this case, unless someone had a gun to your head or <laughs> secretly hypnotized you or inserted a chip in your brain and is electronically in a secret way stimulating your brain to choose to listen if all those things just are not true then we think you had the freedom either to listen or not to listen but this argument startlingly or and interestingly purports to show that you do not have that freedom good that's helpful thanks for going through it john so um the way you presented it there are only a couple of premises one the second one you mentioned is that there's this sort of necessary connection between it being true in the distant past thousand years ago that you'd listen to this episode. Um, and on the one hand, and then you're actually listening to the episode, right? If it was true, then, uh, well, then you have to be listening to this episode now. Right. Um, otherwise really, it would have been false or something else. Right. right. Yeah. One way of putting it that people who are particularly concerned about the fatalist argument is this, they'll say, if it really was true, if it genuinely right. and really was true, then not just probable, then how could I do anything about it now? Um, so that's that's the intuition. And again, that's the specific place where the fixity of the past is playing a role. Right. Matt, did you have any questions about this argument? Yeah, I have so many questions. <laughs> I've... I've I guess there's, it's seen, just like any argument like this that has such simple premises and then have a surprising conclusion, there's, it seems like there's usually something tricky going on. At least when I'm teaching this kind of thing to my students, they all think I'm trying to trick them. Yes. Um, so as it, I guess we could say something like, is there uh, some trick in the wording of the premises? Um, Aristotle, I think he talked about the the modality here of where the necessary necessarily should should be placed in the argument. Is that correct? If I, I'm, I'm yeah, doing this from memory. Well, he did, there are different interpretations of his solution. He did not accept the fatal. He said, oh, the sophists, uh, they're sophistic here. <laughs> it's not, it's uh, sophistry and I don't accept it. But then there are different legitimate interpretations of exactly what he uh, was saying. And one is, yes, that he thinks there's a fallacy um, a modal fallacy. Um, the way I put it, I didn't use the term necessity, but we could use the, the term. I, I was thinking of a kind of free will necessity or power necessity, according to which I don't have choice over something. If, if I don't have a choice about something or I couldn't do anything such that it would be false, then that's a kind of necessity. Aristotle worried that um, the first premise that, let's see, that I have no choice about, well, he thinks that 
on this one interpretation that there's something fallacious about the inference uh, that the you need the necessity of all of the premises of the the fact that I couldn't do anything about the past Mm. and the fact that um, the past leads to the present to put it simply. And he didn't think that both of those necessities were present or were uh, plausible, but let me, let me, before I go on, I I think the most plausible interpretation of Aristotle is that he denies that there are truths about the future. He denies, some people use the term future contingents. He denies that now there are truths about tomorrow. Now, it might or might not be the case that tomorrow I take a walk in the afternoon. Um, but what Aristotle says is, it's not now true, <laughs> given that it's I'm free tomorrow either to take the walk or not. Even if I do choose to take the walk and do take the walk, it does. it is true then that I'm taking the walk, but it does not follow that it's now true. And similarly, uh, it's not true than a thousand years ago that you would um, watch the podcast or listen to the podcast now. So that's really, most people think he uh, does not accept that there are truths about the future that involve human freedom. And either they're all false or perhaps there's an intermediate or third truth value. That's the idea that you're denying the law of excluded middle. You're denying that everything is either true. Every proposition is either true or false. Some people think Aristotle thinks future truths about human, or sorry, future propositions or statements, let's say, about future free human behavior are not now either true or false. They have some middle truth value. Yeah, so it's kind of like a a mistake to say it was true 1,000 years ago because 1,000 years ago it wasn't true yet. Yes, exactly. That, that's the trick. Uh, you were looking for a trick. That's uh, people think. Well, you are you are assuming that because something will happen, it follows that it's now true that it will happen in the future, and it similarly that it, if something happens now, that it follows that it was true yesterday and a thousand years ago that it would, and they think that's a fallacy. That's a trick. Um, that it's easy to miss it or not to see it, but that's where some people think Aristotle was going, denying that there are future contingents about human behavior that are now true. Are there any other responses to the argument that you think are worth mentioning? We're going to dedicate an entire episode to talking about logical fatalism, but if there's any others that you want to mention, briefly cover. Yes, the the one that I um, have always been uh, attracted to is the idea that, well, let's assume that there are future truths, or sorry, true future contingents about human free behavior. So so if tomorrow I take my walk, if I actually do take it, and even if I was free not to, then now it is true that I will take it. It it doesn't mean that I can know that or anybody else can know that. That's a a problem about knowledge or epistemology, but in fact, it is true. But what I would argue is that 
it only appears to be a real or genuine fact about the past that it was true um, a thousand years that we would all be participating in this conversation or that you, the audience, would be listening. Um, it was true ten th or a thousand years ago that you would listen today, but that's not um, a, a, a part of the past that's genuinely over and done with. It's kind of on this answer to the um, fatalist argument, it only appears that the first premise is true, uh, that I have no choice about that uh, past fact, because it's not, because most past facts I really don't have uh, a choice about, but this is not like other past facts. Um, the fact that something was true in the past is dependent on or implicitly uh, contains the present. <laughs> and some people even think what it means to say it is true that, um, let's say, it is true that Socrates is sitting, that that is nothing more than to say Socrates is sitting. So the whole idea of truth doesn't really add to the statement, um, if it's a declarative statement. And if that's right, um, well, we can see that something's being true in the past is no different from that's being true. And so the fact uh, you're listening to this podcast now, if that was true yesterday or a thousand years ago, it's being true is no different from it's just happening. And there's no reason why we should say that you couldn't have done otherwise. Certainly, my favorite answer is this idea that it's not really genuinely about the past. Yeah, and that makes it different from the fact about the past you gave the example of earlier of uh, JFK's assassination. That, right. That's very different than talking about something's being true in the past, right? Right, exactly. Good point. I mean, it's over and done with. John F. Kennedy's assassination is over and done with. Uh, but it's being true in the past that I will participate in this interview. Now, some people might think, again, uh, this is the reason why the argument's so interesting and appealing to some. If it really was true, if it genuinely really was true, <laughs> then maybe that was something that uh, in the past that I couldn't do anything about. But when you think about it, it, the fact that it was true in the past doesn't seem to be over and done with because intuitively I can do other than I, I actually do. And even though the argument's calling that into question, you have to figure out what resources the argument is using. And if it purports to use the fixity of the past, then you have to make sure it really is the past that's being referred to. Right. So, so would are we denying the fixity of past when we say something like this and saying, well, there's actually two different kinds of past statements. There's a kind of past right. statement like the JFK example that you can't do anything about. But there's another kind of past statement that depends on what happens in the future. Um, I think Planning has examples like this, doesn't he? Yes. Um, and, it, you know, it's true now that I don't smoke. <laughs> but if right. I, you know, if I started to smoke tomorrow, 
Um, I, th- I thought I remembered him having an example like that, like the yes, yes, person yes. Who, who smokes, like when they stop smoking, it's true that they stopped smoking um, as long as they continue to stop smoking. Right. Well, that's right, that he has examples where the past depends on the present and intuitively I can affect the present. Therefore, I, there are certain facts, the dependent ones that I can affect in the past. And so what I would, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. Some people could say, yeah, then I'm denying the general fixity of the past idea. And I'm just saying there are certain facts about the past that are intuitively fixed. And we shouldn't generalize from those to the claim that all facts about the past are fixed. Another way of saying it is, no, I'm not denying that the facts about the past are fixed. I believe that all genuine, real uh, facts about the past are fixed. It's just that some facts are not like that. Like, uh, consider the fact that my alarm clock went off at 7 a.m. this morning. That is uh, a genuine fact about 7 a.m. and now, given that it's um, 8 p.m., um, it's a genuine fact about the past relative to now, and I cannot do anything about it, no matter what I try. But the pat, the fact that my alarm clock went off at 7 a.m., um, what's five plus eight? <laughs> 13 hours, 13 hours prior to my participating. That in this interview that is a fact it did go off 13 hours prior to our listening to or participating in this interview that's a fact about the past but it's not i mean it only appears to be a fact about the past um it's not a genuine or real fact it's a funky fact or some people have called it a soft fact um, so Plantinga has the idea of certain facts being dependent and therefore not fixed. Following William of Ockham, the great um, medieval logician and philosopher who invented Ockham's razor, uh, there, some people have said there are hard facts and there are soft facts. And the fact that John F. Kennedy uh, died in 1963, that's a hard fact about the past. That's over and done with. There's nothing I can do about it. But the fact that my alarm clock went off at 7 a.m., 13 hours prior to now, uh, that's not a hard fact. There's uh, prior to, I should have said, prior to my participating in the interview, if I hadn't participated, then that wouldn't have been a fact. And so truths about the past are soft facts, or at least I would suggest that. Great. We should turn to the second uh, alleged threat to free will, and this is going to build on on the first. So the second threat is from divine foreknowledge. You could think of it, I guess, maybe, John, you can correct me if you'd like to think of it differently, but you could think of this as the, the threat from fatalism, but add this divine being into the picture who knows the truths in the past about what will happen. Right. Okay, so how does adding a divine being who has foreknowledge uh, complicate things? Right. It does add something important, and it's a great segue from what we were just talking about, because now the engine that we've been talking about, the fixity of the past intuition, pertains not to some propositions having been true, but God's having 
known exactly what I will choose and do. And more specifically, God's having believed in the past exactly what uh, that I would choose and do exactly what I chose and do and did. So a thousand years ago, given that I did begin uh, participating in this interview at seven at 8 p.m., let's say, um, God knew a thousand years ago and thus believed, had the mental state of belief a thousand years ago that I would uh, participate in the interview on this day at this time. Um, therefore, um, uh, since the past is fixed and since I can't do anything about the fact that I will, that given God's belief, I will participate in the interview. It follows using the same logic exactly as we used in the fatalist argument. It would follow that I can't do anything about um, participating in this interview. I couldn't have done otherwise. The, the, there was no branch there in the Garden of Forking Paths. Hmm. And, of course, uh, a, a problem uh, would be that this gets generalized. That is, if God is truly omniscient and all-knowing and eternal and perfect, then he knows everything that I ever will choose and do. So I, if the argument is a valid, sound argument, then uh, I, unbeknownst to me, and despite my natural view that the future is a garden of working paths and that I don't have to do what I do, shockingly again, <laughs> if God exists, I never could have done otherwise. And uh, to make it very simple, the difference between this argument and the fatalist argument is the idea that God's beliefs in the past um, entail my present behavior. God's beliefs seem much more like hard facts. God's beliefs seem like John F. Kennedy's being assassinated. And therefore, the fact that God held a certain belief seems out of my control now. So that's the difference. It's a stronger argument, I believe. Hmm. Right. So in the case of a human belief about the future, would it, would just about anyone want to say someone's having that belief at a certain time is a genuine hard fact about that time? And so it seems like that we should say the same about God if he exists and has exhaustive foreknowledge. Well, um, you could go either way. Uh, the, the thing about human beliefs is that no human being is infallible. Um, no, no human being is such that if they have a certain belief, it's necessarily true. Their having the belief does not entail its truth. Mm -hmm. That's different with God. God's beliefs entail their truth. So um, some people, again, following William of Ockham, think, you might have thought that God's beliefs are like human beliefs and like John F. Kennedy's death in 1963, but there's an interesting difference. God's beliefs actually entail the future events they're about. Or they, um, and given that there's that entailment, God's beliefs are a lot like it was true a thousand years ago <laughs> that I would participate in this interview or that yeah. you the audience would be listening because it was true a thousand years ago that you would listen entails you would listen and similarly god believes a thousand years ago 
that you would listen, entails you would listen. So it's interesting, the argument for theological in the, uh, determinism or the incompatibility of God's foreknowledge or for beliefs and human freedom is in between, you could say, the fatalist argument and we'll get to the determinism argument. It's similar in some ways to the fatalism argument, but also different. Can we, um, I'm hoping at least that some of our listeners are going to be non-philosophers. Can you give us a little bit of clarification about what you mean by entail in, in that last part that you just explained? Yeah, entail means imply or um, if some proposition or statement P entails Q, it means if you accept P, you have to accept Q. You have to by the laws of logic. So as an example, if um, John is a bachelor, that's not this John, but some other John. If John is a bachelor, that entails that John is an unmarried male. That the entailment there is based on the meaning of the term bachelor. But as let's say more abstractly, if you accept that some uh, that there's a conjunction of true propositions A and B, if you accept that that's true, that entails A. It also entails B. And again, if you accept A and B, then you must accept B. Or you must accept it. That's what entailment is. Yeah. So it seems when I when I think of that the way that you explain it, there's one sense in which you can think about the problem of foreknowledge as we there's something that we have to believe, and that if we don't believe it, we're irrational because there's these overwhelming right. logical support for this conclusion. But it also seems like there's something else going on that's stronger than that. It's not just that we should believe, but it's something in in the metaphysics of the way things actually are. Yes, good point. Uh, I was I put it kind of in a not as careful a way as I probably should have, but another one way of capturing that metaphysical point, uh, even though it's slightly technical, not too technical, um, if some proposition P entails Q, then in all possible worlds in which P is Q, true, Q is true. So if P entails Q, a less technical way of putting it is, in every situation in which P is true, Q is true. And that's what makes it the case that if I were to accept P, then I have to accept Q. But you're right that I put it psychologically where the psychology really is based in the metaphysics. So let's, uh, if I may... um, I just, because I want to get into this and let you ask questions. Right. The causal, again, it's the same argument, except this time, what we're, uh, let me just back up and say, what's causal determinism? It's um, a doctrine that became much more visible and salient uh, about, let's say, uh, 300 years ago during um, kind of the rise of science, the enlightenment, and the, uh, then the uh, was more reason, but then science. And the idea is that in principle, everything could be explained, fully explained in terms of the past and the laws of nature, the, the natural laws, the laws ultimately 
uh, some people believe, of physics. That's the reductionist view that everything can be reduced to the laws of physics. But uh, now we don't have such a theory now, uh, and maybe no such theory will ever be developed. Some people think quantum mechanics is essentially indeterministic, although other people deny that. And by the way, <laughs> there's an interesting deterministic version or interpretation of quantum mechanics that's called the many worlds interpretation. And many people think that it's uh, very similar to the ideas in the Garden of Forking Pass mm. by Borges. Matter of fact, um, some people think that uh, Borges was influenced by uh, some of these scientific ideas. But in any case, um, so all I really wanted to say was some people interpret quantum mechanics indeterministically, but then there are deterministic interpretations according to which the indeterminacies are just gaps or, or limits on our current knowledge. But we don't know if determinism is true or not, But all of, and we don't know that God exists or not, um, but the argument is about the relationship between, let's say, God's existence and our freedom, so the compatibility issue. And similarly, what uh, some people would want to argue is that if causal determinism were true, then real physical conditions or causal conditions in the past, together with the laws of nature, entail what I choose and what I do. And that's just generalizable. And so the idea here is the fixity of the past is now even stronger than in the God's foreknowledge case and considerably stronger than the fatalism. This time we're talking about indisputably real, genuine physical conditions in the past. And those, because I have no choice about the past, I have no choice about those physical conditions that an ideal uh, physics would identify or be able to describe. And I certainly have no choice over the laws of nature. It follows that I now have no choice over what I do. Again, a startling conclusion. The idea is causal determinism might well be true. It doesn't manifest itself necessarily phenomenologically. That means it's not going to feel like I'm being blown by a hurricane or pushed by someone or have a gun at my head that's creating this irresistible force in my mind. It could be that determinism works in a way that I don't have access to. And if that turned out right, and many scientists do work on the assumption that we will eventually come up with a deterministic theory, hmm. and I'm never free to do otherwise, that the garden of forking paths is just an illusion. And what I think, though, in the end is that these are really interesting, important, skeptical arguments. They're skeptical because they challenge our common sense view of ourselves as free as and they as our relationship to the world uh you know uh, we think of uh the world as and time as unfolding in such a way that we have open paths or branching futures these arguments challenge that and they challenge that picture by relying on pretty intuitive ideas about the fixity of the past and so hmm. In the, in the end, and I know we don't have time to talk about it today, but um, in the end, I want to figure out whether there's a kind of free will and a kind of freedom that could ground our 
dignity as persons and our moral accountability that's different from the forking paths idea. It's a distinctive kind of freedom. Uh, but that that's just a teaser. <laughs> yeah, we could put a name on it, even if it is just a teaser. We called the the freedom we started with the Garden of Forking Paths or Leeway Freedom. But you and, and others have used the term source or sourcehood to emphasize a different right. conception of freedom. Right. Source compatibilism or what I like to say, uh, as opposed to a leeway approach, it's an actual sequence approach. It doesn't require alternative possibilities, but it looks carefully and in a more granular way at the actual sequence. And are there properties of the actual sequence that ground the idea that we act freely? And ultimately, I think you can defend that idea. It's not simple. (laughs) And uh, I can go back to the first question you asked that when I was an undergraduate in my uh, class with Michael Bratman, we read a great article by Harry Frankfurt, in which he argues that there is a different kind of freedom that we don't need uh, the garden of working paths, as long as we walk down the one path with a certain kind of um, freedom. So, uh, that would be something that I think that would be one direction you could go in light of these skeptical arguments. Thanks so much, John. This has been really helpful. And I'm I'm sure our listeners are appreciative of you laying out these arguments and talking about their similarity and structure. Um, If listeners are interested in reading more of your work and following your interviews and other podcasts, uh, is there a place that they can go online to to follow you? Right. We're going to, I'm going to suggest a link to a, a, a very comprehensive online list of my articles and presentations. Uh, but if I were to identify one place, uh, I would recommend my contribution to the volume that was edited by um, myself and Dirk Paraboom and Robert Kane and Manuel Vargas. It's called Four Views on Free Will. It's uh, published by Blackwell. It's on that online list I just mentioned. Four Views on Free Will. And each of us lays out our views in a pretty accessible uh, way. And so that's the one place I would particularly recommend. Great. Thanks, John. We'll definitely link all of that in the show notes so listeners can get it very easily. Um, And thanks to everyone for listening in. Um, Just to give you a quick preview for our next episode, we're going to dive into the problem of fatalism uh, in more detail. And our guest next time will be Dr. Alicia Finch, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northern Illinois University. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for being on with us. Right. I had a great time. So thank you.